Remember the famous leadership line about the fox and the hedgehog? As the ancient Greek poet Archilochus wrote, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. When a fox is hunted by a predator, it finds hundreds of ways to evade a captor. It's sly, creative, always adapting. By contrast, the hedgehog curls into a spiky ball and lies still, every time. One is highly adaptive, the other single-minded and ever-focused. Listening to this, you no doubt know that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs died at the age of 72 on November 7, 2020, following a second cancer diagnosis and sudden death that stunned much of the UK and a far wider audience throughout the Western world. He was given just weeks to live before his death. Just what kind of religious teacher, scholar, and rabbinical leader was Jonathan Sachs, chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth of Great Britain from September 1991 to September 2013? He was, without a doubt, a prolific scholar, thinker, and teacher, publishing 31 books, hundreds of sermons and articles, and a wide-reaching BBC devotional minute that reached millions of listeners over his incredibly fruitful life and ministry. Rabbi Sachs spoke many words over the years that have staying power, including twice to faith angle groups, and we'll queue up some of those direct clips a bit later in this tribute podcast. I admire Rabbi Sachs so much because his life had a kind of singularity about it. He did one big thing, and I hope this episode can reflect that. Jonathan was born March 8, 1948 in London to a Jewish family of merchants. Educated early on at St. Mary's Primary School and Christ College in Finchley, he later studied philosophy at Cambridge University's Gonville and Caius College. He conducted research in moral philosophy under Bernard Williams, and then later in moral philosophy under Philippa Foote at New College, Oxford. He received his PhD from King's College, London, and took his religious education first at Yeshivat Tomai Tamamim in Israel, and then at Jews College, London. He was ordained in 1976 and undertook two rabbinic appointments in London before undertaking lectureships and visiting professorships at five universities in the London area between 1973 and 1990. The following year, upon being appointed chief rabbi in the UK, Rabbi Sachs called for a decade of renewal for British Jewry, rooted above all in commitment to the Torah. His 2005 book, To Heal a Fractured World, The Ethics of Responsibility, called on religious readers to reflect upon a more truly Jewish approach to contemporary issues, including social issues. He was named associate president of the Conference of European Rabbis in 2000 and taught at NYU after stepping down as chief rabbi in 2013. Throughout those years, his writing never ceased, and it resonated. In 2002, his book, The Dignity of Difference, won a Gaumeier Award. In 2009, his commentary on the book of Genesis, Covenant and Conversation won a National Jewish Book Award. And in 2015, his Not in Our Name, Confronting Religious Violence, was the topic of his Faith Angle presentation in Miami, a speech linked in full in the show notes, alongside several other TED Talks and resources. The last of his books is Morality, Restoring the Common Good in Divided Times, published in the spring of 2020 in the UK and in September 2020 in the US when it was the subject also of a faith angle conversation just two months before Rabbi Sachs' death. He, of course, earned many titles over his seven-plus decades, most consistently rabbi or teacher, but also Baron Sachs and Lord Sachs for the 11-year seat he held in the British House of Lords from 2009 to 2020, Dr. Sachs for his own PhD, and then another 16 honorary degrees that followed, Sir Jonathan Sachs, knighted in 2005, by Her Majesty the Queen, quote, for services to the community and to interfaith relations. And finally, husband to Elaine, dad to his three children, and grandfather to his nine grandchildren. The outline for his final book, Morality, stems from a 2018-19 BBC series in which Rabbi Sachs interviewed peer scholars such as Robert Putnam, Michael Sandel, Melinda Gates, Jordan Peterson, Jean Twangy. David Brooks, and others. It's really a wonderful book, linked in the show notes via Amazon, No Hard Feelings, and we'd highly commend it if you like what you hear in the coming minutes. The book covers much ground, loneliness, social media, changes in the market, and the challenge of growing income inequality, especially at the top, identity politics, the post-truth era, 
and the fundamentally differing moralities that vie for attention in today's public square. After his opening comments, which we'll replay in full just a bit later in the podcast, he and nine participating journalists dive straight into the mix. If you're new to hearing Rabbi Sachs's voice, you can anticipate hearing from a deeply insightful, inviting teacher from whom we can all learn. Was he more hedgehog than fox? Perhaps that depends on whether you see adaptability versus singularity as the more essential leadership task. Rabbi Sachs did many things, but he did one big thing. And after he died, his friend Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, summed up one hallmark of Rabbi Sachs for what he calls, quote, his deep commitment to interpersonal relationships. You couldn't help but be swept up in Jonathan's delight at living, his sense of humor, his kindness, and his desire to know, understand, and value others, Welby said. That started with perhaps the most important Ida Wee transformation that Rabbi Sachs ever experienced, a moment that, as he tells the story, somehow broke through as a gift. Once upon a time, a very long time ago, I was a 20-year-old undergraduate studying philosophy. I was into Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and Sartre and Camus. I was full of ontological uncertainty and existential angst. It was terrific. <laughs> I was self-obsessed and thoroughly unpleasant to know, until one day I saw across the courtyard a girl who was everything that I wasn't. She radiated sunshine. She emanated joy. I found out her name was Elaine. We met, we talked, we married. And 47 years, three children and eight grandchildren later, I can safely say, was the best decision I ever took in my life. Because it's the people not like us that make us grow. And that is why I think we have to do just that. The trouble with Google filters, Facebook friends, and reading the news by narrowcasting rather than broadcasting means that we're surrounded almost entirely by people like us, whose views, whose opinions, whose prejudices even are just like ours. And Cass Sunstein of Harvard has shown that if we surround ourselves with people with the same views as us, we get more extreme. I think we need to renew those face-to-face -face encounters with the people not like us. I think we need to do that in order to realize that we can disagree strongly and yet still stay friends. It's in those face-to-face -face encounters that we discover that the people not like us are just people like us. And actually, every time we hold out the hand of friendship to what somebody not like us, whose class or creed or color are different from ours, we heal one of the fractures of our wounded world. That is the us of relationship. In the remainder of this podcast, we'll share several excerpts from Rabbi Sachs, particularly from the final year of his life, as a way of honoring and remembering him. But this first excerpt, used with permission from the organizers of the service, marking the completion of Rabbi Sachs' Shoshim in December 2020, comes from former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair. Prime Minister Blair describes in just under three minutes how Rabbi Sachs helped him see not only spiritual truth in the Book of Exodus and in the Torah, but also its application to wider political and public life. For me, Jonathan was a teacher. We often used to discuss the Bible together. And I would recall in my youth and through hundreds, thousands maybe of church services over the years, I'd read the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the whole tale of the Jews going from Egypt to the Promised Land. And what Jonathan did for me was he gave those things that were stories I was familiar with, he gave them meaning. And he gave them meaning to me in the life that I was leading. So he he would explain to me how it wasn't just a, the story of a journey, but it was about leadership. 
about leading and being led, about governing and being governed, about hope and despair and vision and struggle, about faith, about a covenant broken and a covenant restored, about wickedness and about redemption. And through that, he taught me how the wretched weakness of humanity is so clear when absent from God and when united with God, that extraordinary potential for human achievement. So he he ended up in part giving me a sense of my own religious tradition and an understanding of other religious traditions. But most of all, he gave me a feeling of why it was important to have faith and how faith was central to human progress. So we know he's been taken from us far, far too young. But when I think of all the things that he taught me and when I think of the difference he made to my life and to the lives of so, so many others, it's an extraordinary legacy and a wonderful example to those of us who remain. And I know that the things that he gave me as a teacher, as a true rabbi, they will remain with me until the day I die. And in some small way, I try and then pass on some of those lessons to those who come after me. This is the greatest testament to a human life that can possibly be. What is that one big thing, if it could be summed up as a single distillation about Rabbi Sachs? He maintained a love of truth, of life and of others, ultimately of wisdom. This is his enduring hallmark. He wanted almost voraciously to understand the deepest truths and he couldn't help but share those truths with those he loved, namely anyone seeking righteousness. This full of life, indomitable yearning made his own learning and discovery more compelling, more appealing. One hears it again in a marvelous six-minute YouTube video linked in the show notes entitled Why I Am a Jew. There is humility, conviction, and wonder. For Rabbi Sachs, the Jewish life is unique, yet it points us to the universal. There is membership in one tribe amidst the many. There is curiosity and comfortability within those limits. As he puts it, This is my people, my heritage, my faith. In our uniqueness lies our universality. Through being what we alone are, we give to humanity what only we can give. This then is our story, our gift to the next generation. I received it from my parents and they from theirs across great expanses of space and time. There's nothing quite like it. It changed and still challenges the moral imagination of humankind. I want to say to Jews around the world, take it, cherish it, learn to understand and to love it. Carry it and it will carry you. And may you, in turn, Pass it on to future generations, for you are a member of an eternal people, a letter in their scroll. Let their eternity live on in you. Rabbi Sachs comments soberly on the Holocaust, on Shabbat, on the dignity and depth that comes through education, the importance of mitzvot, and on the direction of history against a future messianic age. He reminds listeners that the name Israel means wrestling with God. It means learning, questioning, discovering, and in the end, the deepest thing, relationship. His lifelong task of staying awake to apply the lessons from history and from the scriptural text to contemporary life, it was Judaism, and it was contagious. And if Rabbi Sachs kept in mind one big thing, his coherence and focus was readily present when he spoke last fall with Princeton University's Robbie George, also on EPPC's board where Faith Angle is based, and with AEI's Yuval Levin. It was supposed to be a mostly academic discussion of his book, but the excerpt that follows, used with permission from AEI's Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies program, sounds a lot like a learned rabbi and a Catholic jurisprudence professor preaching. Professor George reflects on contemporary currents across American campuses, from a fast-growing spike in loneliness and search for happiness, to traditional religion, to the idolatries that swoop onto campus when religious deficits leave a massive void. And Rabbi Sachs comments on how, 
In the face of these transatlantic trends, a daily BBC devotional series over the decades cohered, ultimately and almost inevitably, around the theme of morality, the topic of his final book. You can hear the two scholars reflect on how a disheartening religious leadership deficit, during the pandemic especially, also presents a kind of opportunity. <laughs> well, uh, Jonathan, let me thank you for not writing a merely academic book. <laughs> I've read a lot of them, and I love reading them, and it's what I do professionally. But I've read a lot of very interesting, valuable academic books about morality. What I find they don't teach, which your book does teach, is morality. <laughs> <laughs> They teach, or what they do is what they offer, and what in some of my own scholarship, I have to confess, I offer is the analysis of morality, of moral norms, of moral questions, of moral disputes. What you give us, uh, thank you, God bless you, is moral teaching. Mm -hmm. Moral teaching, informed by scholarship, informed by the work of philosophers, including those you've mentioned, like Anscombe and Geach and Foote and McIntyre, but it's actual moral instruction, and that's valuable. But let me push a little here. As you know, I'm about as committed an Aristotelian as you can have. I'm right there with Anscombe and Foote and McIntyre, my own teacher, John Finnis, other neo-Aristotelians. And I think that the neo-Aristotelian movement in philosophy, the revival of Aristotelian thought, especially in moral philosophy, is one of the great achievements of the post-World War II period in academic life, certainly in academic philosophy. And yet, Jonathan, I wonder whether what you are doing so brilliantly with the viewers of the BBC morning program and what I'm doing in my own, much of my own public work is basically living off the capital of biblical anthropology and morality, the biblical understanding of human nature and the human being and human dignity and morality. And I don't think we can rely on that or, or live on that forever with our secular people that we're reaching out to. Yes, I can give them all the Aristotelian arguments. You can too. You do it better than I do in a language they can understand better than I do. We can give them that. We can give them the case for virtue. And it's all true. It's not just tricking them. It's not just rhetoric. It's all true. But somehow at the foundation of it all, and this is true for Aristotle himself, what's deficient in Aristotle? He's in many ways, I, I refer to him always as my father, as our father Aristotle. But what's missing? What, what enables him to embrace a doctrine, for example, of natural slavery? What's missing is the principle of the inherent and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family as a creature made in the image and likeness of God. That's what's missing. And we're relying on it when we appeal to our secular friends in virtue terms, and it'll work for a while, but it can't work forever, which is why those religious communities need to do what you did for the Jewish community and with the Jewish community in England. They cannot be AWOL. We can't keep this up. We can't keep this ship afloat if the religious communities aren't doing their jobs. We need revival, as our evangelical Protestant friends say. We need revival, and not just in the evangelical world. We need it in all of our religious communities. They have a crucial role to play in rebuilding the common good, in giving people a sense, again, of we and why we matter, and not just me and my desires and my interests and my goals. End of sermon. Robbie, you're right. And to be honest with you, I'm lacerated by this. We had seven, eight months of lockdown, well, however long it's been. Yeah, almost that, yeah. And where have been the spiritual voices, the moral voices, the religious voices? Uh, I have been shattered by this. I mean, really, really, really shattered. And the best I can do, I mean, be blunt with you, Robbie, the best I can do, as I've been doing, is to stay in touch with the rabbinate around the world, to give them some kind of praise and reinforcement because they're going through tough times, having to deal with difficult pastoral situations, funerals that close relatives can't go to, weddings that keep having to be postponed, Dying people whom hospitals will not admit 
their own children to come and I mean, these are terrible. So you do what you can to stay pastorally close to rabbis around the world, to steer them in ways that you think they'll find helpful, to frame matters for them in a religious kind of context that they will be able to hand on to their congregations. And you do what you can to keep your rabbis feeling that some of us really care for what they're doing and we know the strains and stresses they're under. But, you know, at a certain point, there will be a day of judgment. Five years from now, people will look back and say, when all this was happening, who was speaking to us? Who was lifting us? Who was really and truly giving us hope? And at the end of the day, all one can do is say, look, do you know that line? It doesn't quite work in English the way it works in Hebrew. Do you remember when, when Moses has come to the aid of one of his fellow countrymen in Egypt who's being hit by a taskmaster? And he rescues him. And then the next day, it says, he looked here and there and there was no one there. Well, you know, obviously there was somebody there because this was a building site. But I think what it means is he was looking in every direction to see whether anyone else was willing to lead. Yeah. And in the end, he couldn't see anyone else. So he said, okay, it's got to be me. So I think every one of us has got to answer that question and not say, why doesn't somebody else do it? To be a leader is to say, let me be among the first. We mentioned earlier that after publishing his final book, Morality in the United States, Rabbi Sachs spoke to nine journalists during a small group Faith Angle dialogue just two months before he died. That talk raises many of the core themes in the book and was followed by questions from Will Salatin, Mona Charon, Pete Weiner, Michael Ware, Tom Jelton, Richard Reeves, and Tim Darable. An introduction referenced two jokes Rabbi Sachs tells in the book, shared primarily because it was the kind of humor our late founder Mike Cromerty also enjoyed. So I hope you'll enjoy these clever stories about the Brandeis rowing team, travelers, and then another from Rabbi Sachs, before hearing his wonderful half-hour talk, and then a couple of subsequent Faith Angle windows from journalists and others who knew him. I've been thinking a lot this past week about our late founder, Michael Cromerty, who had a three-year anniversary of his death this past week. And of course, one of the things that he loved most in the world was humor, and purposeful humor in particular. That's something he apparently shares with the emeritus chief rabbi, as you no doubt know, if you made it all the way through the book, today apparently he's wearing a yellow tie because he's realized over the years that one of his charges is to cheer people up and not merely to diagnose. And since it's still relatively early hour on the East Coast, by journalist standards anyway, in concluding this introduction, I'm telling two quick jokes that he tells in the book with the guffaw that Mike had in mind. First, on a rowing team at Yeshiva University, the story is told that after five successive losses, the team sent its captain over to Harvard University to sort of see what they were doing and see how they might improve. Upon returning, he came back and said, they're doing everything opposite us. They have eight people rowing and only one person shouting instructions. So that was one. The other, an old Jewish man and a young Jewish man were on the same train. This is from page 141 of the book. The young man asks, excuse me, sir, what time is it? The old man says nothing. Pardon me, sir, what time is it? Again, the old man stays silent. Sir, I'm asking you what time it is. Why don't you answer? The old man breathes deeply and says, young man, the next stop is the last stop on this route. I don't know you, so you must be a stranger. If I answer you now, there will be a relationship between us and I'll have to invite you to my home. You are handsome and I have a beautiful daughter. You'll both fall in love and you'll want to get married. So tell me, why would I want a son-in-law who can't even afford a wristwatch? And that's in the chapter on time. So again, we'll flip to you just following Rabbi Sachs' remarks. Rabbi Sachs, congratulations on the book and welcome back to Faith Angle. Josh, thank you. I can't possibly sit here and not respond in kind. So here is one of my favorite 
stories of all about writing books. And it was told to me by the subject of the story, namely um, Alan Dershowitz, of, then of the Harvard Law School. Alan comes from quite an orthodox Jewish family. Some of the members of that family are very orthodox indeed. Alan is a completely secular Jew, but he actually wrote a book about the book of Genesis. It's called The Genesis of Justice. He actually did this. And he sent it to his very, very religious uncle, thinking that his uncle would approve of the fact that his nephew had finally written a book on the Bible. Well, his uncle received the book, and a week later, Dershowitz phoned him up and said, Uncle, how did you enjoy the book? And his uncle replied, there's only one word in the book that I would like you to change. And Dershowitz said, which word? And his uncle replied, Dershowitz. <laughs> That's a terrific story. Alan is a, a very, very funny guy. Let me begin with a little story, if I may. Many years ago, I was conducting a uh, officiating at a wedding of a uh, child of friends of ours. Under the uh, wedding canopy, the chuppah, I said to the young couple, you are about to embark on a journey to the one unknown country that is left, namely the future. We seem to know so much. We look up and we see a universe of 100 billion galaxies, each of 100 billion stars. We look down at the human body and see a body of 100 trillion cells, each of which contains a nucleus, each of which contains a double copy of the human genome with 3.1 billion letters of genetic code. We seem to know everything. There's just one thing we don't know. What tomorrow will be. Several years later, the mother of the groom said to me, do you remember that speech you gave our son at the wedding? I said, yes, I remember the speech. She said, do you remember what day it was? I said, no, what day was it? And she replied, the day before 9-11. So you never know what the future will bring. I wrote a book about the fractures and fissures and divisions and dysfunctions within contemporary liberal democracies not dreaming that there would be a pandemic, which actually hit on the very day the book was launched in Britain. But it has become so very much more relevant as we in Britain and you in America are being tested. Do you have the necessary moral strengths, the resilience to come through these stresses? And it's difficult. Essentially, what I did in the book is look at the whole panoply of things that are strange and in some cases, not in all, but in some cases, really dysfunctional, unequal economies, massive and indefensible differentials between CEOs and the lowest paid, identity politics, which is politics of the most brutal and fragmenting kind fake news, post-truth, the whole issue of the cancel culture, the no platforming, the return of public shaming, and the fragmenting of our individual lives from real face-to-face -face encounters to electronic ones through the social media, with the resultant isolation and loneliness and rise among teenagers in particular, of depression and stress-related syndromes and suicide attempts and actual suicides. We had a figure, I and mean, this is the figure that shook me really, that in 2018, 40% of 14-year-old girls in Britain self-harmed in some way. That 40% is an awful lot.
And one way or another, the question that I raised, and it took me many years to work this one through, is are these discrete phenomena? Are they just a list? Or do they have something in common with one another? Are they symptoms of some underlying cause? And I argued that they are, in fact, just that, that free societies, and especially morally-based free societies, which is what the England inspired by Milton and Locke was, and the America inspired by the Pilgrim Fathers through to Washington and Jefferson and the authors of the Federalist Papers and through to the one who is my personal inspiration, Alexis de Tocqueville, who saw all of this so very clearly, understood that you need a situation in which within society there's expression of I, individualism. And Alexis de Tocqueville says, to explain what's happening, I have to coin a new word, individualism. In the 1830s, that was a new concept. To balance individualism with that sense of we, the collective responsibility, the what he called the art of association. You gather together your friends and you build a hospital or a school or you form a charity. The things that made Tocqueville absolutely astonished in wonder at uh, the power of Americans to do so. And indeed, the power of American religious organizations to inspire that kind of altruism. And so you need a balance between the we and the I. You have only I, you get those societies on the brink of collapse, like third century BCE Greece or second century Rome or Renaissance Italy. Very creative, but they burn themselves out very fast. Or you have we, which is, you know, Soviet Union, communist China, a lot of cohesion, but no liberty. So one way or another, you have to manage this balance, which is quite a difficult thing. It's, it's an art form. And could we trace a moment when that balance, as it were, got out of balance? Now, Robert Putnam of Harvard did something very, very clever. And I, I must admit, I'd never heard of it before. Have you heard of a Google Ngram, do you know that thing? You know, the Google Ngram traces the occurrence of words in Google's digitized library of everything he ever published, etc. And he did this test of the relative incidence of we and I. So from 1800, it's in balance until 1964. And in 64, all of a sudden, the I goes shooting up and the we go shooting down. So he was able to put 1964 on it. I was thinking, I hope this isn't completely irrelevant, but when I was chief rabbi, we lived in St. John's Wood. It was the official residence. I couldn't have afforded it otherwise. And between our home and the synagogue, that's an eight-minute walk, there was a road that came to be quite well known called Abbey Road, which was where the Beatles recorded all their songs. It has the world's most famous zebra crossing, which is the one I walked across every time to go to synagogue. So here's a very interesting test. Google Beatles, 1964. And they are wearing the same clothes, the same ties, the same haircuts, and the same smile. Everything about them says we. Move to the end of the decade to when... Uh, they're falling apart. And you look at the last song they ever recorded together, which was George Harrison singing, I, me, mine. So that'll have to uh, stand against Robert Putnam's engram. But all I can say is that we have clearly lost the we. Now, why does this matter? This matters quite simply because of the problem that exercised Charles Darwin very greatly. Charles Darwin believed that in the battle for natural selection, the most ruthless will win. The ones who are most altruistic, who sacrifice their own safety for the sake of others, will die disproportionately young. And therefore, he concluded that over time, the gene for altruism, not that he used those words, would go extinct. But Darwin knew that every single society ever known 
to human beings, valued altruism above all things. So this was a contradiction at the heart of his theory. And he couldn't find a solution to it in his book, Origin of Species. But later on, he wrote a book called The Descent of Man in which he solves the problem, which is if a group is composed of members who are altruistic toward one another, that group will be stronger than other groups and therefore will survive. Or as we would put it today, we hand on our genes as individuals, but we survive as groups. So because we're individuals, we compete, but because we are groups, we cooperate. And the formation and sustenance of groups is where altruism is born. And it's native to all of us. We all have an altruistic instinct. It follows, therefore, that any human society must have two things, arenas of competition and arenas of cooperation. Competition where it's I against you and cooperation where it's all of us together. And that is basically what happened in all societies. You had two things, the state and the market, the competition for power and the competition for wealth. And then you had the moral bond, the moral culture of that society, which was the arena of cooperation, of altruism, of we. What has happened in the last 50 years is that that arena of cooperation has become more and more atrophied. So that all we have left is the state and the market. And we have outsourced morality to the state and the market. Can I do something? Well, can I afford to? Can I buy it? Is it legal? Yes, fine. The idea that there might be something I can do or not to do doesn't exist anymore virtually for most people. So the market gives us choices, and then the state deals with the consequences of those choices. If they're bad choices, if I become obese or a drug addict or what a bad parent, the state will pick up the pieces, which means that we have outsourced morality, which means that now we are not playing a vital function in the sustenance of society as a moral unit. And the end result is that we are now dysfunctional because we're great at competition, but very bad at cooperation. Let me give you a striking example, which I'm surprised not more people have written about. If you ask which of the countries that have done really badly during the coronavirus pandemic, two stand out above all others, America and Britain. America, 6 million people have caught it, 190,000 have died from it, way, way above any other country in the world. And Britain having an extremely high level of deaths per million of the population, as well as one of the worst, maybe the worst in the world, for economic collapse, 21% economic collapse. I mean, in the States is about 95 Britain, 21%. No other country is that bad. So all of a sudden, these two powerhouses, these two cultures that we, not just us, but the world looked up to, the two that were the great defenders of liberty in the 20th century have suddenly become the countries most unable to deal with the pandemic crisis. I have been very interested because it turns out that Again, I don't know if you noticed this. We picked this up in March already, that wearing a mask is a very interesting empirical test of how much of an altruist you are. Because what we knew in March was a mask won't protect you against others, but it will protect others against you. So wearing a mask is a measure of altruism. Now just go and have a look in Britain and America and see how many people are wearing masks not as many as there should be. Why? Because they're more concerned with the I than the, with the we. That's an infringement on my liberty. Well, hang on, your liberty depends on respecting the liberty of others as well. So I think all the things that I was writing about have become very, very clear today in many, many fields. And I'm really troubled about it. Number one, for instance, this freedom of speech, which is really under attack, 
I mean, I've really seen people that I, I respect. I mean, beloved friend, Stephen Pinker, who doesn't agree with me on anything, but I love talking to people who disagree with me. You know, it's, that's great. You know, almost threatened with being stripped of his honors of the Foreign Language Association and so on. Luckily, the authorities pulled back. I mean, this is ridiculous. J.K. Rowling? I mean, my goodness me. Deary me. I mean, did she really intend to be offensive to transgender people? I just think she wanted to say, I like women, and that's it, you know. I mean, so this has been really, really problematic. You know, the Talmud asked the following. The Mishnah records two schools, two teachers of the first century BC, Hillel and Shammai. And the law is almost always like Hillel. And the Talmud wants to know why. And the Talmud replies, because the disciples of Hillel were modest and compassionate, and they taught the views of their opponents as well as their own. And they taught the views of their opponents before their own. I mean, for heaven's sake, Hillel understood what freedom of speech is about. So did the Romans. The Roman definition of justice is audi alterem partem, hear the other side. And if you're not willing to hear the other side, you are not going to arrive at justice. You know, the, <laughs> the BBC had just put up uh, outside Broadcasting House a little statue to George Orwell, which says, if liberty means anything, it means the freedom to say what other people don't want to hear. And that is what we've got to stand for. And number two, you know, friendship in public life between people on different sides of the political divide or racial divide. I don't know, to my mind, one of the most moving speeches ever made in America was the speech Robert F. Kennedy made the day Martin Luther King was assassinated. I mean, he made a more formal speech the next day, but the one he made on the day without thinking, you know, when he quoted Aeschylus saying, our task is to make gentle the life of this world. I mean, somehow or other, the idealism of Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King met and embraced. I tell the story in uh, the book about a unique moment in British politics we were traveling, five of us, I think, to Israel to the funeral of Yitzhak Rabin in November 1995, who had just been assassinated. And on that plane were the Prime Minister, John Major, leader of the opposition, Tony Blair, leader of the third party, Paddy Ashdown, and, and the Foreign Secretary, Malcolm Rifkin. The Queen's plane flies very very slowly. If you're a queen, you don't rush. So an ordinary commercial flight to Israel takes about four and a half hours, but the queen's flight takes over eight hours. It's a very long flight. And Paddy Ashdown, pretty much at the beginning, turned to John Major and said, John, probably the three of us, you know, the three party leaders here, have more in common with one another than with the extremists in our own parties. So why can't we talk together openly and discuss some of the problems facing Britain? And without the slightest hesitation, John Major did just that. And for eight hours, they discussed every issue facing Britain. And John Major, who had with him cabinet papers, was showing them stuff that was... Um, very, very discreet, and he, he wouldn't let me see it. I, I was open-mouthed during this whole time. And they'd never sat together before, not even any two of them. And somehow for eight hours, they overcame the fact that they were from different parties and they were going to be fighting an election quite soon, and they were just friends together, because at the end of the day, what party I belong to is subordinate to the fact of what country I belong to, or what ideals I belong to. Now, can you imagine happening today? It's really hard. And I have to tell you this, when things like that happen away from the public gaze, somehow or other, 
it communicates itself and not by leaks. It's just that when these guys see one another or when they talk about one another, there's a clear kind of affection there. And that holds the country together in a very profound way. And then economics. I gave the example of one of the saddest interviews I ever had. Some years ago, just a few months before he died, the man who had been Britain's leading industrialist, Lord Arnold Weinstock. He was Britain's leading industrialist for four decades. He was the textbook industrialist. And he came to see me. He said, I just want to get this off my chest. And he told me how he had built up GEC, General Electric Company. And he told me what he paid himself. He paid himself 400,000 pounds. Let's call that what? $500,000, $550,000. And of course, he had a logic to it because he took the view, as did many others, that the ratio of CEO paid to the lowest paid should be 20 to 1. And that's what he did. He came to me with tears in his eyes, saying, my successor pays himself 10 times that amount and is destroying everything I built. And that was not the bitterness of an old man because everyone knows that story. He did indeed destroy GEC while paying himself a fortune. And that's what made me think that markets need morals. Economics needs ethics. It's not just a pure mathematical calculation of maximization of this or that. And we need that. We really need that because the disparities today are so acute that people are going to rebel at some stage. In 2019, Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Capital, uh, America's most successful hedge fund man manager, said the income inequality in America is an existential threat to the American future. That was April 2019. So all of these things tell me that the pursuit of truth or of economics or politics or what have you they're not exclusively moral, but they need some kind of undergirding of morality. Otherwise, we simply won't have it. Now, why do I think we can get it back? The short answer is that America has a unique political culture. I wonder if most Americans understand how unique that political culture is. I give you an example. The most famous phrase in American politics doesn't exist in British politics. We, the people. The uh, preamble to the Constitution. Nobody ever says we, the people, in Britain, because in Britain we are the loyal subjects of Her Majesty the Queen. It's not we, the people, at all. And we, the people, is the language of covenant, which is a biblical language. And the reason that America had this language is that its first founders were Puritans. They were basically Calvinists. And it was the Calvinists who delivered a, a political theory based really on what they called the Old Testament, especially on the book of Deuteronomy. And they generated new kinds of free societies, or at least pre-free societies, you know, neo-free societies. First in Calvin's Geneva, then in Holland, then in Scotland, and then in the 1620s in um, Britain and in America. The Mayflower Compact is a covenant. The Arbella John Winthrop sermon is a covenant. The language of the Declaration of Independence and of the Gettysburg Address, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Those are the things that made G.K. Chesterton call America a nation with the soul of a church. Nobody else has those kind of ethical ideals at the very basis of their existence, and they're very powerful ideals. And therefore, America actually has covenant written into its language directly or indirectly. 
The most direct case was Lyndon Baines Johnson on uh, 20th of January 1965. But you can sense it there in everyone. It's there in Obama, it's there in, in Bush, it's there in Bill Clinton. You know, Bill Clinton's second inaugural. We have come to the promised land, let us make it a new land of promise. You know, this is Exodus Deuteronomy stuff. And what is special about covenant? Number one, it does not suppose that there is a single moral truth revealed for all time, either by philosophy or by theology. A covenant is an agreement. We come together to agree to be bound by these ideals and to be held accountable. So it bypasses all the question of who are you to say. Secondly, a covenant always is about accommodating diversity. You know, it's not imposing one rule on everyone. It's saying every single one of us agrees to be part of this agreement. So a covenant deals with diversity better than any other moral system. And thirdly, because it's about responsibility. It's about we are all responsible for one another, and we are not necessarily going to leave it all to the market or to the state. We know we have local responsibilities, and we are going to be active citizens and not leave it to other people. So it seems to me that that is the way to recapture that moral ground. If it sounds like an enormous undertaking, and what difference can you and I make? Let me just end with the little story which we all enjoyed in Britain. At the height of the lockdown, I'm sure you read about this, a 99-year-old army veteran called Captain Tom Moore said, what can I do to help the country? 99 years old. So he said, I will go on a sponsored walk to raise money for the nurses in the national health system. Trouble was, we were in lockdown. So the only place he could go for his sponsored walk was walking round and round his garden, which wasn't a very big garden. Anyway, somehow, somebody, his aim was to raise a thousand pounds for the nurses. Somebody picked this up and suddenly people started filming him and he appeared on the news items as the kind of cheer you up eccentric little story at the end of the news bulletin. And he then became, at age 99, a national hero. He raised for the nurses not a thousand pounds, but 33 million. He was promoted from being captain to being honorary colonel. And when he reached his 100th birthday, the queen gave him a knighthood at Windsor Castle. And I thought, if that's what a 99-year-old can do, then let none of us say there is nothing we can do. If one tiny little virus can affect the entire world, what used to be called chaos theory or the butterfly effect, then I hold that there is such a thing as a chaos theory of virtue. Sometimes good can be contagious as well. And there is good every one of us can do. Rabbi Sachs had more to say in the full back and forth with the group, from navigating the use of victimhood and interest group politics to new trends in echo chamber journalism to the rise of cancel culture and living in post-truth society, to the ways that building the common good requires coming across the aisle and seeing the other with new perspective. The whole conversation is linked in the show notes. But Rabbi Sachs also made clear that he hasn't by any means given up on journalism, given its enduring importance in society. Listen to what he says about the role of contemporary op-ed writers and other journalists, for example. And ditto with journalists. I, I really don't want to name names here. But I have asked myself, given that we're in a kind of, if you know what I mean, biblical moment, we've got plague here and goodness knows what else. Who are our prophets nowadays? 
And the short answer is our journalists, our op-ed writers, they're the people who are explaining us to ourselves. And if they do so with clarity and with authority, they will do it. From the vantage point of the journalists, it was very much a two-way street. Here's what Michelle Borstein, a leading religion reporter at the Washington Post, had to say in reflecting five years later on her encounter with Rabbi Sachs at a Faith Angle gathering in Miami. I knew of and read Rabbi Sachs long before I met him at the Faith Angle event in Florida in 2015. I was fortunate enough to be seated next to him at dinner, and he was a generous and inquisitive and charming conversation partner. Even as I have to suspect spending a few days with mainstream journalists carried its frustrations for him. Sure, we hadn't read his books, and I won't pretend to understand everything he said that weekend about dualism and historic messianic Judaism and identity. But what I took away from him was his incredible hope for humankind. He seemed to want to take all of human history and hold it up like some complex crystal and see the important driving forces and then report back to us how better to live together. Rabbi Sachs was both so deep in his own beliefs and yet so open and loving to others. He was able to talk to all kinds of people as friends. He was able to say, Christians, you've been in the majority for so long, you're out of practice seeing things from the other side. Muslims, Islamism isn't delivering freedom. But he knew he didn't have the answers. I strongly identified with and cherished in particular one thing he said. We need new ideas. We have to come up with 21st century ideas if we want to win the battles of the 21st century, and we haven't so far. He said, get serious about ideas. I often think about this because I don't often see religious thinkers as being on the cutting edge. I don't see our best minds tackling religious questions. I wish he was around for whatever's next. When Rabbi Sachs died on November 7, 2020, the United Kingdom and Jews throughout the world lost a treasure. And in truth, we all did. His was a trustworthy voice that just kept picking up followers. Jonathan lived life seriously and to the full. He knew the meaning of a life well lived. He took seriously his charge as a scholar and teacher, which in some sense shined even more brightly in the digital age, thanks to far-reaching BBC radio and broadcast journalism. The now online resources he left behind overflow with empathy, zeal, and prophetic insight. He is dearly missed, but in some strange sense, his teaching voice remains with us. That's perhaps because Rabbi Sachs himself so clearly focused on one big thing. Whether through wedding homilies or in print, he helped many of us learn clearer, richer lessons from the past that provide ballast for an unknown future. Deep in his bones, Rabbi Sachs had every confidence that the God of the Hebrew Bible was and would remain worthy of trust in times of fear, unshakable no matter the valley. Here he is again in 2017, connecting the joy of helping another to flourish to faith. So instead of self-help, other help. Instead of self-esteem, other esteem. And if you do that, you will begin to feel the power of what, for me, is one of the most moving sentences in all of religious literature. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We can face any future without fear, so long as we know we will not face it alone. So, for the sake of the future you, together, let us strengthen the future us. If Rabbi Sachs was a hedgehog, his one big thing was that he lived as a religious Jew, connecting faithful belief to present and future fruitfulness. Yeshiva University's Meyer Soloveitchek argued in a Wall Street Journal piece five days after Rabbi Sachs died that, quote, for Europe and the UK, Jonathan Sachs was the most gifted voice for biblical belief in his time. May his memory be a blessing. Faith Angle exists to open connections between leading journalists, 
scholars, and clerics. Thanks for listening.